Kitchen Brain Podcast is brought to you by Be Better Culinary Perspectives, Life and Leadership Coaching. My name is Mike Matarazzo. I'm a chef, a certified life coach, and founder of Be Better Culinary Perspectives and Chefs for Change. I help hospitality professionals and service professionals find balance and direction while maintaining positive leadership. Through my practice, I offer one-on-one coaching sessions where my clients and I develop a co-creative relationship that helps them find the answers to their most challenging life questions. I've come up with a variety of different plan options to fit any schedule or budget, and have even designed a text coaching plan that puts me in your pocket. We could all use a little extra support and guidance now more than ever. To find out how a coaching relationship can help you, visit our website, BeBetterCP.com, or send me an email at MichaelM at BeBetterCP.com. We work so hard to serve others. It's about time we start serving ourselves. Kitchen Brain. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Kitchen Brain Podcast. Uh, Today, I have a a great guest today with us, Melinda Dorn. Uh, Melinda is an industry peer, support specialist, and outreach coordinator for Culinary Hospitality Outreach and Wellness, also known as Chow. Chow is a Denver-based nonprofit whose mission is to connect restaurant and hospitality workers with resources to support recovery and mental health. Before her role with Chow, uh, Melinda... Uh, worked as a chef for almost 30 years, pastry chef, um, in the U.S. and abroad, and discovered that uh, what she really loved about the restaurant industry was the people. And in 2016, she returned to college and studied chemical and mental health and food service environments from an academic and clinical lens. Melinda, thank you so much for, for joining me today. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited to, uh, to, to jump into all this. I know you have, um, you know, the, the pastry background and the professional kitchen background. Um, you know, season two of Kitchen Brain is, is kind of heavily focused uh, toward mental health. And I thought that that was timely and, um, you know, necessary for a lot of people now who are kind of wondering if there are any resources out there. And uh, I hear so often people say that there's really no place to go to get support. Um, I don't have the money for it or my employer doesn't pay for it. So, um, so I, I really am excited to share, you know, the things that you do uh, to, to help people with that stuff. So um, take me back uh, when you were a chef. Let's go to, to kind of the, the beginning uh, when you were a chef in professional kitchens, kind of um, how that was for you and, and how that, uh, kind of turned into your current mission. All right. So let's go into the way back machine here. Uh, I am in Denver currently, but that is like the 27th place I've lived in my adult life. Uh, I was born and raised in New Jersey into a dysfunctional and alcoholic family. Work was my escape from a very early age. I used work to moderate my mind and my mood the same way that somebody might use alcohol to moderate theirs. Um, And as soon as I started to connect the dots that food could bring a smile to people's face, um, I started 
loving being in culinary environments. And I didn't start off a pastry chef. I actually, my humble beginnings were in a food court in a mall in Freehold, New Jersey, which the restaurant doesn't exist anymore, but it was a bakery on one side. It had a combined kitchen in the back and a Mexican restaurant on the other. And, uh, and, and again, what I've come to see in reflection over my 30 years is that it may never have been about the food at all. It may have always been about the people. The food was the catalyst to connection. And so here I am at 47, dropping the food, dropping all the titles and focusing on the connection. In the meantime, you know, not to jump, not to, not to fold my lifeline up like a taco there, but in the meantime, I went to culinary school in Atlantic City, New Jersey, or just outside Atlantic City in a town called Mays Landing uh, at the Academy of Culinary Arts. It was a great program. I can't say enough good things about the teachers and the instructors there. They really showed me that my greatest resource lies within me right? It's my perseverance. It's my ability to overcome barriers and obstacles. It's my resiliency. It's, uh, you know, this inherent personality traits, which I couldn't have identified at the time, but somehow they did. And, and so they took me under their wing. They fostered my, my education. They fostered my sense of identity. And, and I graduated from there. I felt pretty prepared to take on the culinary world. Maybe I was delusional, right? Like a lot of culinary students are when they get out of culinary school and they're like, I'm ready to be an executive chef someplace. Uh, but the delusion lasted for, for a while. I spent a lot of time in kitchens in both sides, the hot side and the pastry side, not that there's sides, right? We're all part of the heart of the house. Um, and, and then uh, traveled because somewhere, all, everywhere, always someone needs a chef. So I, I worked in seasonal resorts and national parks for a good decade or so uh, before landing in cities like Washington, D.C. and Lake Tahoe, California and Seattle, um, Boston, you name it. And I kept on running into the same uh, barrier, which at the time I couldn't overcome, which is everywhere I went, there I was. Uh, you know, every town I moved to had one too many Melinda in it. And so I would work someplace for six months or a year going on some of the kind of antiquated uh, slogans in the industry, which is, if you haven't learned everything you're going to learn in a restaurant in six months, you haven't had your eyes open, right? That's, I think, a quote from, uh, from Bill, Buford book, Bill Buford's book uh, on Mara Batali, right? Uh, if, if, you, if, you if you aren't moving on, you're, you're stagnating, right? Moss, Rolling Stone, whatever the analogy or slogan you want to use is. Right. And so I did that. I, I would learn everything I thought I could learn in a place. And since I always chose what I thought was the best restaurant in that town, my ego wouldn't let me go get another job in that same town. I had to move to a completely different town to, to go somewhere else and learn new things and meet new people and ultimately recreate the same Melinda I left and thought I left in the last town. And there she was again. So, um, yeah, moving, uh, moving to Wisconsin in 2012 from California after the restaurant I was working for on the shores of Lake Tahoe was sold back to a marina. Um, I, I did not predict uh, that my bottom was coming, my bottom in the restaurant industry. And what that looked like for me was overwork, you know, anywhere between 80 and 110 hours a week. Uh, never knowing how to draw boundaries or any kind of um, transition rituals between work and outside of work. It was work, sleep, while thinking about work probably in my dreams, you know, wake up, go back to work. Um, so I was, I was definitely in an addictive behavior pattern there with work. Uh, I was struggling with anxiety and depression, didn't want to name it, 
finally went to a therapist. Uh, my job in Wisconsin was at a James Beard award-winning restaurant. They were kind enough to give their employees health benefits. I finally went to see a therapist. We started to be able to name the problem. And there were times where even the Walgreens was about 50 yards outside the front of the restaurant. I could not leave the kitchen. I was afraid that if I left, it meant I was being lazy, taking care of myself meant being selfish, even using the bathroom, right, was, was where's Melinda, you know, she's probably on her phone in the bathroom or something like that, right, as cell phones started to invade the workspace. Uh, I was just constantly in fear and dread and anxiety and then depression over the fact that I didn't have any skills or tools or support to do anything about that. And then ultimately, in 2016 I, or 2015, I left that job and moved to Minneapolis thinking, and here's, here's where, you know, give your best plans over and, and let the universe laugh at them, right? Uh, I thought I was moving to Minneapolis to study herbal pharmacy and nutritional therapy because let's be honest, I'd been making the world a fatter place one person at a time for the past 25 years. And I thought maybe there's something I need to do to balance that scale. Maybe I can use my skills with cooking to actually heal people's bodies rather than hurt them. Maybe I can use my skills to heal people's communities rather than hurt them, right? Causing this dissension between the haves and the have nots, working at places that charge $250 a plate, that kind of thing. Morally and ethically, it started to weigh on me. What am I doing here? Um, my life was ruining my life. So um, I get up there and the college I intended to uh, go to has one of the oldest addiction counseling programs in the state, maybe even in the country, because, you know, Minnesota model, much of drug and alcohol counseling is built on programs and structures built in, in Minnesota over the past 50 years. Not that that's always a good thing. Um, but I, I started taking these classes and I started identifying my life in what I was learning. And I started identifying my coworkers in the restaurant industry, their life in what I was learning. And then finally in 2016, I took a peer recovery support training. Uh, it's called the Recovery Coach Academy with Minnesota Recovery Connections. And that's what blew my mind up. I mean, this was a year after Kat Kinsman gave her speech at the MAD Symposium in Norway, describing the mental health and substance use problems of, of the industry. Uh, and here was this gem of curriculum sitting right in front of me uh, called Peer Recovery Coaching that could help people be people with other people, supporting them shoulder to shoulder, clogs to clogs in the kitchen. Um, and yet we didn't know about it. So many people still don't know about it. The military is using this, right? The military is using evidence-based practices like peer-to-peer -peer support to, to keep the suicide rate low, to keep the depression and anxiety low and all that kind of stuff. I said, what an obvious parallel. If the restaurant industry, as we know it, was built on a military backbone, what works there might work here. And so um, I've been on a mission ever since to kind of bring the tools and the skills used in peer-to-peer -peer support into restaurants. And then into communities, right? There's a, an initiative called Community Initiated Care, meaning there's no wrong door. Your trip to good mental health can start at the supermarket. It can start at the barbershop. It can start at the restaurant. It can start at the post office. Um, and organizations like the Wellbeing Trust is really spearheading this, um, this campaign all over the United States. And so Chow is, is that, right? It's clogs on the ground. No, no chef left behind, no server left behind. All are welcome, whether you're about to be in the industry, whether you've left the industry, whether you're in the middle of it, uh, if you're a writer, a farmer, a producer, grower, you name it, 
all are welcome here because there's no wrong door. That's wow. all. Yeah. Okay. So that's <laughs> that, woo, right? Like, okay, that concludes my TED talk. Um, but well, uh, yeah, please ask me a so, question. So, so early, early on in in your story there, um, you said that you suffered from depression and anxiety, and you couldn't name it at the time. So, I think this is is something that uh, a lot of people have trouble with and and don't understand or don't know. Um, how to identify or if they should even be trying to identify anything. So what did, um, when you say you, you couldn't name it, what did it look like? I mean, how did you know that there was something um, to name w with regard to depression and anxiety? Um, so it started off with general aches and pains in my body that I had no direct acute source for. So shoulder issues, uh, knee issues, ankle issues. And I just was attributing that to being on my feet in the restaurant all the time. Well, uh, in the seasonal business, you have usually a shoulder season, shoulder season where you get to kind of take a few weeks off and, and do whatever is necessary to repair and restore yourself. And I found that after that month, I, I hadn't, I hadn't repaired or restored myself. And this was 10 years ago. I was only 37. My body shouldn't have felt the way that it did at that time. My, my, my theme song was that Garth Brooks song. I'm much too old or much too young to feel this damn old, right? Yeah, that right. was on replay on my CD player <laughs> all the time. Um, and so I, I went to a physical doctor. I, you know, not ready or willing to say I might have mental health concerns here. Went to a physical doctor. I said, all I ever want is caffeine and sugar. My body hurts all the time. I have no desire to do anything fun or playful. All I know how to do is work and then go and work out sometimes at a gym. Those were my, I had a very uh, dualistic life. I was either asleep or I was awake and on and moving, but there was no rest. There was no relax setting on this machine known as Melinda um, that was ruining my relationships with partners who would maybe, who were of course always in the restaurant industry. It's the proximity rules. You date who you can grab, whoever's within six feet of you, right? Um, but uh, so I found myself on a similar schedule as my partners and on our days off, I was so restless. I was expecting all the stimulation that I got from a 14 hour shift in a restaurant doing 400 covers to come from this person. And I did not know how to do life any differently. Like all I knew how to do was work and work was killing me and my relationships and my body. Um, so when I went to this doctor and I explained all that, uh, she said, you're depressed. I said, no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm like, depression's like when you want to kill yourself, right? And she's just like, sometimes she goes, if you live like this for another 10 years, you might get there. And I'm like, no. No, like depression. I'm tough. I'm from New Jersey. I'm Melinda, you know, like, right. don't you know who I am? And she's just like, yeah. And so does your body. Your body knows who you are. And so here she, she prescribed some pills, which I took for a little while. Um, but ultimately, you know, again, didn't want to leave the restaurant to go pick up my prescription. You know, this was before mailing systems or anything that I knew about like that. Uh, so I just stopped taking them. I was just like, nah, I can't really tell if they're doing anything. Um, I can't, you know, I'm not like suddenly on, it's not the effects of a, of a stimulant, right? Antidepressants aren't a stimulant. Right. They just take you to baseline. And I couldn't recognize baseline cause I'd blown past it so many years before. I, I didn't know what I was seeing. I didn't know what normal was right. Which is 
also a side effect of growing up in a dysfunctional family and working in a dysfunctional industry, right? We guess at what normal is. So um, I, I stopped taking it. And then sure enough, a few years later, I'm back in an emergency room having had a panic attack at work, thought I was dying. They did an EKG. They're like, you're not dying. You've had a panic attack. I'm just like, what? So they wanted to put me on medication for the panic attacks. And again, I took them. I didn't know. I wasn't taking them properly, right? Uh, I was taking them as I thought I needed them and, and it was supposed to be a daily and all this other kind of stuff. Not to mention, here's, here's how foolish Melinda circa 2012 and through 2015 was. I get this medication that treats depression right? and I'm drinking depressant alcohol, right? So it's like that, that medication never had a chance in my body right. because as soon as it entered, I poured its enemy in, right? Same sure. thing with anxiety. I'm on these anti-anxiety medications, drinking four or five cups of coffee from Starbucks a day, drinking four or five cans of Red Bull, the cranberry kind's my favorite, um, you know, and, and wondering why isn't this anti-anxiety medication work? What? Yeah, like, right. and I never put two and two together. Nobody right. ever said, they said, don't drink on this. And I'm like, well, don't tell me what to do. But they didn't say don't take stimulant elixirs with uh, a drug that's supposed to keep you from becoming stimulated. Sure. Oh, okay. You know. <laughs> yeah, Duh. That, that's right. That makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. So, you know, you you mentioned um, you said two things, kind of back to back: dysfunctional family life and dysfunctional industry. Um, you referred to your work habits earlier in your career as an addiction to work. Um, I know oftentimes um, addiction is something that stems from the need for an escape. Um, and I guess, you know, do you, is the, the depression and anxiety, was that a result of working in the restaurant industry? Um, is that kind of what you came to through through your your exploration for me and this is just for me my depression and anxiety now that i have been able to name it and tame it has been always a result of me wanting life to show up differently than how it is right now in my childhood that meant why couldn't i have parents that were normal why couldn't i have a father who was healthy and not raging and an alcoholic all the time why couldn't i have a mom who didn't have ocd and hoarding disorder why couldn't life just be different than how it is? And my inability to bring my desired life and my true life into alignment and recognize what lies in the gap between those things and start being proactive about that kept me in this state of like self-pity. Um, now that's completely different than some other people's experiences of depression. I wanna identify that right now. I'm not sure. saying that that is everybody's, um, but the anxiety definitely also coupled with the, the trauma, right? The complex trauma of abandonment and neglect, witnessing physical and sexual assault, experiencing physical and sexual assault in my younger days and not really knowing where to take that information, right? Which is one of the reasons why, you know, there's, there's no wrong age to start seeing a therapist or a specialist for those kind of things, because you'll save decades of reflection and, and self-abandonment and, and all this other stuff if you address it as soon as possible after the trauma occurs. We know this. Science shows us this. Evidence-based practices tell us, right. you know, a national or natural disaster 
get the trauma response team into that community as fast as, as possible. Let people talk about it, let them process it, right? Sure. Um, and, and you will save yourself decades of mental health care later. Um, right. So, you know, yeah. I mean, we even see this. I love Johnny Cash. If you've seen the film, John, uh, Walk the Line with Johnny mm-hmm. Cash, right? The traumatic experience. I love that movie, right? Yeah. The traumatic experience of losing his brother, but never being able to talk to anybody about it. And the way that that informs his life for the next 30 years until he's actually able to say to somebody, I thought it was my fault. I wished it was me. Like, we might have lost out on 30 years of, of great music, right? But Johnny Cash would have a different life. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So you're, I mean, you're obviously focusing on hospitality professionals um, specifically, and I understand why, and I understand that, um, you know, your depression stemmed from something that's different, you know, from any other people. Everybody has their own, their own kind of trigger or source uh, for that kind of thing. Um, But, you know, I I speak to a lot of people about, um, you know, mental health and, and the the benefit of talking and the benefit of seeking support and you know uh support groups and sometimes you know in those conversations people bring up um you know chefs like anthony bourdain and there that 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 definitely triggers some people and uh, a very common response that i see to that is whenever somebody brings up anthony bourdain in this topic of mental health as it relates to our industry is well he didn't take his own life because of the restaurant industry he had a shitty childhood and i i i want to know like what is there there is a parallel there what's the message you know why are you focusing on hospitality why is it so prevalent in our industry for this to happen and what's the difference if it happened in your childhood um, and how, how does it even matter that you're in the hospitality industry now? Why do those two correlate? So trauma untreated gets repeated. So we recreate the trauma of our childhood in our workplaces, in our schools. We know this. Scientists, social scientists, researchers know this. So we drag, in addition to our knife roll on our first day of work, we drag everything that we've experienced every day of our life prior to that day into the kitchen with us there is no separation there is no leave your personal shit at the door right because in one consciously or subconsciously you are going to recreate those patterns you're going to paint that authoritarian face on your new chef and you're going to treat that new chef as though they are that traumatic authority figure from your childhood whether that was a you know a caregiver or a teacher or whoever right and until you're able to talk about it and have a peer reflect hey, here's what I'm noticing. Do you see the same things? It sounds like you're kind of repeating the same relationship you had here in this setting now, right? And you're like, oh, holy cow, I am doing that, right? Like, how could I not do that anymore? Like, what do I need to do so that I don't continue to paint my owners or managers as parental figures who are responsible for my happiness in this environment, right? How do I stop painting my coworkers like my dysfunctional siblings, rivalry for attention, rivalry for resources, rivalry for raises and promotions and things like that? How do I stop treating myself like the lost child whose needs don't matter? 
whose feelings don't matter. Sure. Right. So we, the, you know, when we talk about it's fancy, fancy, dancy word, ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, what we're, what we're seeing now is that that is, is connected uh, to mental health at, at every stage of one's life, if not addressed. The sooner sure. you address it, the more liberated and free you are to make choices without your past informing them. Sure. And so with Anthony Bourdain, right, like uh, if you if you read his book, I think it was uh, in medium rare uh, or medium raw when uh, when he described trying to cook for his daughter for the first time and her not wanting to eat any of his fancy French food. Right. That. Oh, my gosh. You know, when I read that, I cried because it's like I know that sense of rejection right whether it comes from a child or from a parent or from a friend or from a boyfriend or from a customer right i know that sense of rejection i've been there before i'm feeling it again as though it's happening now but it's a memory right if that yeah. could be triggered from just reading a story right imagine the more sensory memory that we engage on a daily basis when we're talking about sight, sense, taste, touch, and hearing, as well as the mind knowing it's doing all that, as well as all the super sensory skills that chefs have, like putting love in their food and putting soul into their cooking and putting passion into the way that they work, right? Like we are, we are experiencing those old memories every yeah. single day on one level or another. Yeah, sure. And the, the restaurant industry is kind of a good place, I think, to not have to talk about anything. I, I feel like it's, I, I feel like people find that escape for themselves because, you know, they're supposed to have a wall up and they're supposed to be guarded and, and not vulnerable. Um, so I, I guess it's kind of like the perfect breeding ground or, or, you know, place for, for people to gravitate toward um, with that kind of thing. So, so you also, um, you also started culinary recovery. Right. And that is um, the website for that is culinaryrecovery.com. I'm going to put that down in the description if you're watching this on YouTube. Um, but tell me about culinary recovery. I know you offer uh, some services for, for schools and employers, peer to peer support. Um, what, what is all that about? So uh, culinary recovery started as a passion project and I think it was 2016 or 2017, right? And it's kind of weird. So I'm going to take you on a little journey here. There's a book, a Stephen King book about the, like the end of the world. And some people have this vision of this woman in Oklahoma, I think, where they're all just called to gather to her and they don't know why this vision's in their head, but they just can't stop themselves from like going to this woman. I feel like that's what's happened in the past five years when it comes to resources for restaurant industry workers there's like somebody woke up one day like john our founder of chow woke up one day and says we need this i saw that peer recovery support training in 2016 and i was just like we need this you know uh Hassel up in toronto you know saw what was happening to our industry and said we need this chris hall at the burnt chef project said we need this and so like around the globe all at the same time completely siloed and separated from one another we all woke up and had the same idea our people need help, our family, our, our community, our, our team uh, globally, as well as, you know, locally need help. And so I decided that um, my first step into this was going to be starting a Facebook page where I collated all the articles that were coming from all these siloed environments, Australia and the UK and Texas and California. I'm going to just continue to collate these articles and set, so that people know the conversation's not over, right? One of the, the sickest slogans in a dysfunctional family is don't talk about it 
don't trust anybody, don't have any feelings, right? So I wanted to at least hit that first prong. Here's a bunch of articles. We're not going to stop talking about this until we're heard and until things get different, right? So it started off as just a Facebook group to simplify all that. And then when COVID hit and I had more time on my hands, I was graduating college. Uh, and, and so I'm at home a lot. And all of a sudden I have all these recovery resources that I can connect people in the Minneapolis community to. Like it's, it's, it's just as true in recovery as it is in business. It's, what you, it's who you know, not what you know. So like I was connecting the dots around people in the community. Here's where you can get into a recovery residence. Here's how you can, you know, get a, a job that hires people with, um, you know, backgrounds in secured custody, that sort of thing. Um, but then I started sending out letters. Hey, you know, I've got time. Who needs my energy? And um, Chow, Chow took the bait. Uh, they're like, we need your energy. And so I started supporting them from Minneapolis um, as we started to form this coalition of other organizations like Maria. I know that you've interviewed Maria Campbell yeah. up there with Cooks Who Care. She's got, oh, she's a smart lady. She has got an amazing curriculum, an amazing solution to to what uh the 99 problems that that the restaurant industry has and how to take action on them now right because every right. awareness campaign must evolve into an action campaign or dies on the vine right so talking about this is great but like ultimately that these this conversation has to lead to decisions that sure. that the industry has to make about us moving forward sure and how i i think that's kind of like a big um a big question that I have, you know, I, I started the Chefs for Change group, um, and you know, it's it's grown quite a bit, and I'm proud of it. Um, but you know, like you said, it's it's a lot of questions, it's a lot of discussion, um, and we're talking about an entire industry. When and how do you picture change starting? At at what level does that get addressed, and and how does that get triggered? Man, I'm so tempted to tell a joke about the Dalai Lama and a hot dog right now. I can't stop myself. Oh, I can't stop myself. Okay. Message me if you want to know the joke about the Dalai Lama. And it doesn't end with the punchline change comes from within. Um, anyway, uh, but the change comes from within, right? So these, okay, we know fast food, not so good for you. We know slow food, better for you. Apply the same tech or the same psychology here. Fast change in the industry, not going to be so good for us. Slow change in the industry, going to sustain us for a longer period of time. It's going to be healthier change the slower it is, right? So we are not asking anyone to make knee-jerk changes to their business model. We're not asking, you know, like COVID did that for you already. COVID already asked you to make those knee-jerk changes, right? What we're asking is a subtle shift, a normalization of the conversation, hanging signs in your employee areas where folks can get support if they don't feel comfortable asking where they're standing, where their feet are, right? Uh, modeling what it is to be vulnerable and open and honest about what you're struggling with. And this, again, like most things in a hierarchical sort of environment starts from above. So uh, what we're talking about is recovery responsive employment practices. So at the time of interview, are you in recovery? We ask because we'd like to be able to schedule you in a way that will support that. If you need to attend meetings, we want to make sure that you can get to those, right? We want you to know that we don't only support you when you're here on the clock and you're a machine for us. We also support you 
being outside of this building and being a human being, right? Sure. So that that's one of the ways that it looks to be a, rec a recovery responsive employer. Another way is having sobriety contracts, right? This is something Erin might have mentioned when, when she um, spoke with you about how an employee of her at one point said, I need you to hold me accountable. If I come in high, I need you to send me home. I'm going to lose money and, and you're going to, you know, maybe lose a worker. You're going to have to call somebody else in, but like that threat that I won't make the money and that you're going to, I'm going to inconvenience you is what's going to keep me sober today. And, and, you know, this was new for her. She'd never done it. It was uncomfortable. It was awkward. They worked through it together and they became closer later. You know, the employee came back and said, you're one of the reasons why I'm still sober today. Right. It's little incremental supports along the way it's not just treatment for 30 days it's not just go to meetings and don't drink right, right. it also looks like accepting harm reduction strategies so sure. a way that an, a, a recovery responsive employer could support recovery in their environment is by not incentivizing with alcohol as the prize right yeah, or not right. you know that sort of thing right what else can we offer and listening to the employees about what the answer to that is not designing from the whiteboard, as they said, which is, you know, all the head honchos in the meeting deciding what's best for all the kids. Sure, right? We yeah. want to break that parental model down. We want to make sure that employers are no longer there's the, there's a great book. If anybody wants to read, it's called The Incestuous Workplace written by Bill White. And he talks about this toxic model of management where the, the owners and managers are parents and the employees are treated like children. Decisions are made without any input in the, from, from the team whatsoever. And that cultivates this environment where people are expecting to get all of their needs met in one place. This is why we have workplace romances. This is why we have sexual assault. This is why we have gambling problems. This is why you know people who don't have an outside life, they, they start to struggle, right? Because we need more support than just the people who work for us or, or work beneath us, right? So we need to be getting our financial resources, our, our social resources, our spiritual resources, our physical resources outside of the workplace. But employers win in the short run when we don't, when we're dedicated to the job and the job is all we have and we're just a machine and we just go, go, go for them. They win in the short term, but this sort of transiency model that, that you leave a job every six, eight, 16 months, two years, um, we would have employees with longer longevity if we weren't expecting them to get all of their needs met in one place. Right, right. So how how do we, you know, there's there's obviously a, a little bit of a disconnect between owners, um, general managers, and the line level staff. So the messaging, the support, the uh, all of these things that we're all doing to try to help people, um, you know do better with communicating and opening up and being vulnerable. We're sending that message, um, but then, you know, it's it's really without the support of ownership or anything like that, it, it doesn't always work, you know. So mm -hmm. you mentioned um, uh, modeling vulnerability. So if, you, if you're a leader, what does that look like? These three words, I don't know. Right. Uh, so, so often uh, owners and managers are answering right out of their asses, right? Somebody's coming to them, they've got a problem or, or a situation they need corrected. And the, the owner manager's like, I'll make something up. I'll say this, and this will get this immediate discomfort of not knowing the answer away from me for a while. Right. And, and so there's very little consistency with how people manage. They'll manage one person one way and another the other. And then all of a sudden, there we go again with the sibling rivalry, right, between employees and staff. 
community is built upon shared lived experiences, right? If I live under a roof with a mom and dad and, and two sisters and each of us are all in our rooms, we come out to swallow some food and go back to our rooms, we're not building connection and community, right? Because we're not having a shared lived experience. Owners and managers need to get with other owners and managers in a setting where they can talk about their stresses, right? If they're afraid of, of uh, you know, sharing their their fears and concerns with their staff members. It's a valid concern. Nobody wants to think, am I going to have a job tomorrow? Is my paycheck going to bounce? So getting owners and managers into a space together who have shared lived experiences of navigating COVID, for instance, of navigating new employment laws, of navigating uh, higher wages, of, you know, what's working for you? How's, how's your team's response to that? Oh, they liked it. I'll do what you did, right? And I'll get what you got, right? This is, this is, this is not that this not that hard, right? Same thing with staff, right? If I'm a if I'm a chef or I'm a line cook or I'm a server, I'm gonna have different experiences. So you know, creating environments where people with shared lived experiences can talk about what they're going through, talk about if you've gone through it and come out the other side, what you did, so that you can model that behavior to others and they can practice the same behavior and hopefully get the same results. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That makes a lot I mean, of sense. This is the same way that, that any movement starts, right? Look at Facebook or, or no, forget about Facebook. Look at, look at why do we listen to streaming radio, right? At one point or another, somebody had to say, I've got this new thing. It's called a cassette tape. And all of the people who were listening to eight tracks were like, Oh, that cassette tape gets, gets messed up in the players a lot less often. Let's go to the cassette tape. And then somebody's just like, cassette tapes are for dummies. Let's let's do the CD thing. And then the next thing you know, everyone's like, oh, these CDs are so cool and shiny. And then the next thing, you know, so on and so forth. So it's like, it's one person at a time sharing with another person this thing that they're doing differently today and getting different results from and everyone being like, let's try that. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, uh, that that's, I, I feel the same way with regard to, um, you know, word gets out in, in a lot of different ways. It's not just verbal. And I think that right now we're seeing uh, maybe the strongest example of that. You know, people are talking a lot about the, the next generation coming up uh, in the industry and how, you know, they're lazy and they complain. And, um, and my, my thing is, I tell people, when you look at it, they're not complaining. They're just not showing up. They're, they're not applying. They're, they're very silently and very calmly just going to do something else. And as a result, the entire country is raising wages in a scramble because this silent message came out and we said, well, we need to pay everybody more. Um, so I think that, you know, that's a really good example, I think, of how this stuff just spreads. I think the more it affects everybody, um, the more that people are going to start to to realize it and talk about it. Um, so yeah, I, I totally agree with you about the the gradual change. It blows change. my mind that I haven't heard a cover of that. Uh, was it Rat song? We're not going to take it. You know, yeah. from the eighties. We're not right. going. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Somehow or another, I can't believe like somebody like Dua Lipa or somebody hasn't remade that cover for like the millennial generation and the the Gen Zs <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. I hope but, I hope she doesn't. <laughs> all right fair enough maybe not her maybe miley cyrus i could listen to that um or pink pink would be a great singer that anyway right. um celebrities aside you mentioned the uh the sort of uh venomous 
them millennials don't want to work. Gen Zs are so lazy and all that kind of stuff. I recognize that only because I, I, you know, work in the field of mental health. I recognize those statements as trauma responses, right? It's kind of like when somebody defends corporal punishment, like spanking their children. It's basically them saying, you know, when they're like, oh, I lived through this and I'm fine. It's basically them saying, I'm not prepared to admit that it wasn't okay. I'm not prepared to admit that I was hurt by that. I'm not prepared to admit that, that if I had it to do over again, I'd have chosen not to get spanked. Right. So we're never going to meet trauma with a traumatic reaction and succeed and overcome those traumas, right? So when somebody says, oh, it's those millennials, oh, it's those Gen Zs, you know, it's their fault. They're not, they're not lazy. They can't take what I took. They're, they're wimps, whatever it is. You know, the, the answer is never, you know, you've got to change. You got to change right now. You got to change your mind, think differently, right? It's more like, what does it mean to you that uh, people aren't showing up to work for you right now? Like, what, what does that bring up for you? Like, oh, I'm afraid my, my restaurant's going to fold. That must be really scary. What else? Right. And allowing that to unfold. Well, what do you have in common with the Gen Z's? You know, do you like to get paid? Well, do you like to have time off? You know, had you the chance to do it over again, would you have done your first 10 years of your industry experience differently? Right. Like opening the conversation, but just shutting it down and being like, nope, these are the new rules. You've got to address everybody like this and and schedule everybody like that. And everybody wants to work from home and you've got to go to a four day, 10 hour work week, like being told what to do. Uh, attacking back when we're attacked is never going to solve anything. Sure. Yeah. You know, I think too, it, it's kind of funny because it happens. I think it happens for a lot of people at home, whereas it at work, it's, it's when you're uh, a manager or overseeing a team and hiring people, it's different. But if you, you know, if you have kids today, I have a six and an eight year old and they're talking about things and into things that I have never been into and never talked about. And, you know, some of it didn't exist, you know, with regard to some of the technology. Um, and, you know, I chalk it up as, you know, that's that's the way it's going, you know? I mean, that's kind of the way it is. And I think most people see that, and I think most people realize that. Um, but, you know, they love their kids. But then at work, you know, even though we use the word family, um, maybe too much for some people, uh, but, you know, we use that word uh, but, you know, there are people who grew up and they, you know, didn't know when the next meal was going to be on the table and, you know, had some some real financial struggles, um, you know, but they don't generally grow up and say, like, I didn't eat on Tuesdays, so you're not going to eat on Tuesdays, you know. It generally, you try to, you know, make it better. And I think we do that at home more than we do it at work. I think for some reason, professionally, um, I don't know. I, I, do you notice that? Is that like? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And again, this is where the role modeling comes in, right? We, we can't relate to somebody's direct experience if we haven't had it, but we can relate to the feelings. So for instance, with me, one of my biggest challenges is that I'm not a digital native. I mean, I was still doing my inventory by hand. Right. Uh, and then all of a sudden I'm, I'm pushed into a college experience where I have to put things in Dropbox and D2L and digital learning platforms and, you know, sign, hot schedules. I, I resisted hot schedules as long as I could because I'm just like, just tell me when I need to work. Don't make me log into this crap. You know, I was highly resistant, very reactive to change. And I'm somebody who loves change, right, in every other way of my life. But this digital thing scared me. I felt left behind by the world. I felt abandoned. I felt alone. I felt like somebody else gave everyone else in the world a rule, a rule book on how to do this stuff. And, and I was illiterate. Like I couldn't even read, right? Like I just felt 
about this big and um and that doesn't feel good that does no. not feel good but like when i talk to owners who are like i don't understand what's going to happen to my restaurant you know nobody wants to eat like this anymore everybody wants to pick up from doordash or whatever i'm like I can relate not to, I've not owned a, a restaurant, but I can relate to that feeling. You're scared. You're going to be left behind. You're scared. You're going to lose everything that you knew about yourself and the world around you. You know, that's yeah. scary. Let's, let's keep, let's keep talking. Right. And um, so, yeah, it is, it, it's different at home, you know, than it is, than it is at work, you know, our, 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 so there's something, and I really love that you said about the not addressing our coworkers as family anymore. It, that needs to go the heck away. Call us anything else. You know, if we're military background, call us troops, right? Call us team, call us a kipo, call us whatever you want, but don't call us family because there's these, these, these toxic, undeserved often loyalties to title and structure over loyalties to each other as human beings and and that needs to go away teams team is great right because what happens when a team uh loses a player to an injury they've got an alternative player to put in that spot they don't stop playing right so like that's that's how we need to design our our restaurants moving forward in my opinion is you know bring back the actual structure of the brigade have a torn on right when somebody needs to take a mental health day it's not going to cause a, a halt to the kitchen because somebody needs to take a mental health day you've got alternate players you know you've got understudies put it in a theater analogy if you want we've got understudies if somebody gets sick um you know who are who are prepared to get called in i i read a, a part of a book i haven't read the whole book uh uh chef's drugs and rock and roll and and part of the description in that book is about how in the in the 80s the jeremiah tower days of, of san francisco it wasn't uncommon that a chef would leave and go on a sabbatical to france for a few weeks to learn about french food and their buddy from a restaurant down the street would come in and be the chef for for a few weeks and that sous chef would hold the chef's position while they while the other chef would, where did that go i've You're never right. known a business like that where where did where did all of a sudden it become me my restaurant my team my staff and screw the neighbors right, right. like we know high tide rises all ships why are we not in restaurant communities doing more of that you know, shifting and of players and and using folks who maybe need more hours to back other people up for for loosening up their schedule when they need to take care of their mental health or even their physical health. What right. happened to that? Yeah, no, I you know I understand we're talking about just a word here when we talk about family, um, but do you believe that there's because you know when you say get rid of the use of that word because of some of the toxic things that um, you know happen. Do you believe that there is an environmental scenario that's possible to get to that makes it okay to use the word family? Well, I'm an optimist. I believe anything's possible. Uh, but like many things, just like turning over soil in a field, you've got to let it rest for a while. You got to let it lay fallow before you plant seeds otherwise nothing good's going to grow from it i think the same thing is maybe with that word family it needs to go away for a while and if in the right circumstances they gets brought back into a, a healthy field it'll grow and it won't be toxic anymore yeah yeah no i agree with you i agree with you uh cool well melinda um people watching this they hear you speak they're learning about chow culinary recovery i'm sorry culinary recovery um now they're saying, okay, so we went through all that. It sounds really interesting and fascinating. She sounds pretty cool. What do I do now? What, where do I start? How do I take advantage of everything that you're doing? 
Okay, so first thing is, so Chow has uh, five meetings a week, one hybrid on Monday, one um, uh, live in person in Colorado Springs on Tuesdays at 7 p.m., uh, one virtual, all virtual on Wednesdays, which will be in October uh, at 3 p.m. Uh, and then we also have an all women's meeting on Tuesday. It's going to be starting at 10 a.m. in October. It's moving back in time from some folks who've expressed that they'd prefer it if it was in the morning. And then we also, with our partners, LARA Recovery, which stands for Latino Recovery Advocacy, host a Spanish speaking support group virtually on Tuesday nights at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. So, um, we recognize that the faces of the culinary arts and the hospitality industry are not only white. Uh, so we would love volunteers who may be educated in peer support from whatever community you're in to help us host alternative language meetings. Um, and, and we would really love to get that started. So the way that you would do that would be to contact me, Melinda, um, but my email is outreach at chowco.org. You'll find it on the website, chowco.org. Uh, also, we, for free, thanks to some really generous grants from the state of Colorado, we were able to offer mental health training to staffs around the country virtually. Uh, and if you would love to fly us there and, and, and put us up, we'll, we'll be on boots on the ground. You just say the word. We'd love to come and talk to your staff about mental health and wellness um, in the restaurant industry. Uh, we're doing that free three times a, a week every month. So week one is focusing on when someone asks you how you're doing, how do you know how to answer that? So we talk a little bit about the wheel of wellness and how to really tangibly measure your process and your progress towards being a whole well-rounded person. Um, work-life balance, you know, breaking down that stigma that work-life balance is a teeter-totter and seeing it more as a wheel that has some intersectional factors in it. Um, Week two is about common mental health uh, myths and stigma. Week three is about some recovery myths and stigma. And week four is about um, uh, communication, boundary making communication and how to support how to support each other. So we've taken uh, tools from a lot of different disciplines from the wellness recovery action plan put, by, put together by the Copeland Center to uh, peer recovery support from the Connecticut Center for Addiction and Recovery to our partners with Mental Health America. Um, you can go online to Chow and through Chow get to the Mental Health America mental health assessments and that lets us know that helps us collect data about who in the restaurant industry is experiencing what. So if ADHD is becoming more common, if eating disorders are becoming more common than anxiety and depression, right? So that we can craft our, our uh, curriculum appropriately. Uh, as well as um, we uh, always have the social media links that they can follow us and let us know how we're doing or if there's anything that, that they need from us. And we, uh, you know, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all that kind of stuff. And of course our website. Here on the ground in Colorado, if you're a Colorado resident, uh, and you don't have mental health insurance and peer-to-peer -peer support isn't meeting your needs, uh, then we can also get you connected with clinical services through our partners at Kessid Wellness, who have been just so generous. We've, we've managed to connect uh, restaurant workers to over 7,000 hours of clinical mental health care in the past few years. Wow, that's awesome. That's great. Well, so yeah, so obviously a whole lot of resources uh, happening and a whole lot to take advantage of. So I definitely um, encourage anybody uh, who is interested and, and thinks that they, um, you know, 
are ready to to take this step in their lives, their mental health, and focus on themselves a little bit and, and really kind of meet some like-minded people, some people who uh, can relate to your occupation and, and your lifestyle. Uh, it really is a cool thing to be a part of. So uh, I'll put all the links in the description below if you're watching on uh, YouTube. And yeah, really awesome stuff. Oh, also, just I just want to reiterate, I know you said it, but um, keep in mind that all of the times and the schedule for Chow and the support groups and everything are in mountain time. Um, so don't, don't miss the, miss the show because you're in the wrong time zone. Um, so can, can I share a story real quick? I know we're running out of time. Is this the, but... is this the Dalai Lama joke? No. Oh, okay. oh you're just going to have to, no, <laughs> just going to have to wait for that. Um, oh man, now I want to tell it again. So, uh, we, recently we had this amazing experience, uh, myself, John, our founder, we were in rifle Colorado for a, um, a recovery event. And, uh, as we were leaving that night after the recovery event, we got called by our friends, Kat Kinsman and Andrew Zimmern to come to the food and wine classic in Aspen. Now, this is something I have never attended in person before, but always wanted to, I have had a deep seated resentment towards winners of the food and wine best new chefs since about 1999 when I'd get the magazine every year and I, my face would not be on the cover. Um, but what happened was is that we, we met in this basement of the Hotel Jerome in Aspen and we had a meeting. Uh, we, we basically ran a chow meeting. We, you know, Andrew shared his story and, and Kat shared hers and John shared his. And then we kind of opened it up to the, to the crowd, right, of these new faces, these bright and young shining chefs, right, with, with all this potential getting this accolade. What transpired was literally spiritual healing. It was probably one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had. The titles, the accolades, the awards, like just fell off the people in the room. And all of a sudden we were just human beings being human beings together, talking about what, what we were struggling with, talking about what we were celebrating, talking about just the human experience. I've never had anything like it. And this resentment I've had against winners, you know, where I'm like, what do they have that I don't have? Why am I not on that cover? This is prejudice because I'm a woman and it's always a man who gets it. I mean, all these false beliefs, about myself and my success in the industry or failures in the industry, all of my false beliefs about the winners versus, you know, all this, it just, it shed off of me. And, and, and it was just, it was an amazing experience. And, and that's what, I mean, that's not what every chow meeting is about. That's not right. what every chow meeting looks like, but I encourage folks, no matter where they are in the country, if they'd like to have that kind of experience where it's like being people with other people, letting everything else fall away for an hour, come to a child meeting or start one in your community, right? We've got tools where you can start your own, um, you know, you can ask the questions. It's a little guidebook, little toolkit on how to start a, a meeting in your community uh, because it's worth it. Every single one of the faces on the other side of the screen staring back at this video is worth that kind of experience. And I want to meet every single person who is on the other side of this video, whether it's on a screen or in person too. Cause, yeah. Cause yeah. That's awesome. That is, that is really cool. Um, well, yeah. Awesome stuff. Thank you for doing everything that you do. Um, I'm, I'm glad that we finally got to connect here on kitchen brain. We've been going back and forth about it for a little while now. So, um, why don't you do one more thing? Take us out with the Dalai Lama joke. <laughs> oh man. Okay. So, 
Dalai Lama walks up to a hot dog vendor and says, make me one with everything. So the hot dog vendor does. And uh, the Dalai Lama gives him the 20 and the hot dog vendor starts to roll away. And the Dalai Lama says, wait, where's my change? And he goes, silly, change comes from within. That's the joke. So the punchline <laughs> was change comes from within, but I didn't want to skip over the make me one with everything. <laughs> I th I was I thought it was going to be more hot dog based. Yeah, I was kind of excited about that. <laughs> well, thank you, Melinda, um, for for spending some time with us. Everybody, go check out um, chowco.org, um, culinaryrecovery.com, all their social media platforms, and uh, I think you will have a great experience there. Melinda, awesome having you. Thanks so much. Look forward Thanks, to seeing ma what you what you all do next. Me too. Kitchen brain.